0: Hi everyone, welcome back to the Sweet Tea Series. My name is Ariana Silva. We are recording this episode on Valentine's Day, so you're gonna notice a lot of pink and red in the room, and it also happens to be Ash Wednesday. So if you see a black cross smudge on my forehead, that's what it is from. So I hope all of you had a very happy Valentine's Day and also a solemn start to your Lent. Today on the Sweet Tea Series, we are bringing on someone uh, to talk about the Mexican political corruption And then jumping back onto this side of the border to talk a little bit about the Super Bowl uh, and a little bit about the potential Taylor Swift PSYOP. Here to do that is the chief of intelligence and research, a co-host of The Hard Country, and a cousin of mine, it turns out, Joshua Trevino. Welcome to the show. Hey, Ariana. So how you just found this out for us. How are you related
1: Oh, my gosh. Well, I mean, first of all, before we get into our cousinhood, uh, ever since I found out that you guys were running a show geared toward young conservative women, uh, I've been agitating to be a guest on this show uh, because there's no person with greater understanding and empathy for that cohort than myself. So thank you for having me on.
0: Right. As a father of two boys, you as really a know a lot about girls. As a father of two boys, <laughs> I really just
1: nailed it down. Yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, the, uh, yeah, we are cousins. Uh, you know, one of the things that's interesting about those of us with heritage in South Texas, uh, you know, Mexican American heritage, is that the founding population of that area is pretty small actually it goes back to the 1750s for the most part and it is almost inevitable that anybody from South Texas or with roots in South Texas is going to be related to one another somehow so you grew up in Mission which is a place with a great mural of Tom Landry that you had never heard of till I mentioned it to you despite yeah, that's spending true. your whole life there um, and uh, I still
0: don't quite get who he is I'm sorry
1: I'm I'm really really sorry <laughs> to hear that uh, but uh, good for you that doesn't really affect the core audience of the show so <laughs> The um uh and and my dad's from Laredo, uh, and so which is also part of the old Nuevo Santander colonization uh wave. And uh so so as a as a as a wedding present, uh congratulations in advance by Thank the Thank you. Uh I will share with the, the the viewers I did some genealogy uh for you and um found out that we are uh, I think eighth cousins once removed and also fourteenth cousins once removed, depending on the line that you're looking at. But we were both descendants of the Garza Geniarch and the Trevino Geniarch that goes back to Nuevo Leon and Nuevo Santander.
0: Right. I remember that the first thing that you told me was, we're 14th cousins once removed. Isn't that so exciting? It's through the Trevino line. And I was really confused. I was like, it must be more recent than that. And you said, oh, yeah, there's something else, but that's not important. This is a Trevino line. So <laughs> I,
1: I do I do prefer the Trevino line. It's it's uh, it's absolutely true. Then the Garzas? Yeah. Well, I mean, neither of us are named Garza, but but you're right. I know. It's my is, mom. Well,
0: my mom's made a name. So for me, it still has some closer affinity, I guess. It's
1: got resonance. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But it's true. No, we're, we're related. And uh, any of you out there who are from South Texas, you're probably related to all of your neighbors as well in some way.
0: Well, I guess speaking of South Texas, we're going to go a little bit more south of the border. You just came back from a trip to Mexico City. Yes. Um, And you were there. It was a work trip with some meetings. What was the point of uh, going on that trip in the first place?
1: Well, we've got a variety of partners in Mexico, and we also go down there to uh, talk with uh, office holders, journalists, researchers, intellectuals, journalists, and so on to really get a sense of what's happening in Mexico right now. Uh, Mexico is a great country with great people Uh, I don't just say this because you and I both have roots there, but it really is an objectively interesting place. Uh, Mexico, unfortunately, though, is also a country that's coming apart at the seams. Uh, It has a tremendous security crisis. Um, uh, There's a lot of Mexicans who would disagree with this, but uh, unfortunately, I've been forced to conclude that it's nearing failed state status in some ways, especially up north and in places like Sinaloa. And uh, so we as Texans have an obligation to understand what's happening in Mexico and also to develop policy responses to it. And that's why we uh, had a Texas Public Policy Foundation delegation down there to have these conversations, to learn a little bit about what's going on in Mexico. One important thing that's going to happen this year is there's going to be a presidential election, not just here in the United States, but also in Mexico at the beginning of June. And Do those
0: usually coincide in the same years?
1: No, they don't. So, so each Mexican president uh, has a six-year term, uh, and so it coincides, I think, every other term, basically. Uh, for them. Uh, there's no re-election in Mexico. So you get one shot at being president for six years in Mexico. There's an election this year, the probable next president is going to be uh, Claudia Scheinbaum, uh, who until fairly recently was effectively the mayor of Mexico City. And uh, so one of the things that we wanted to find out was what the direction of her governance is going to look like. And um, anyway, we brought some conclusions back, but that's why we were there.
0: Nice. And I think um, this is going to be the first time we're doing it on the show. We're going to take a little picture tour through Mexico City. So last year, I got the chance to go uh, with Josh to Mexico City. So you'll be seeing a couple of pictures first of that trip. So it was during uh, this, I think it was the week leading up to Mexican Independence uh, Day, if I'm not mistaken. But so I was there filming. So that's in that first photo. Um, I was just amazed actually by how beautiful the architecture of this old like traditional city is and how that's still preserved today and used today and then the last thing that was really significant uh for me whenever i was there was uh getting to go see um something called the tilma of our lady guadalupe when she appeared to juan diego and really converted and changed um, mexican history forever so actually that last picture is with my uh uh a statue of John Paul II, who is my confirmation saint, so very important to me. So it was, I didn't even know that was there. And that was fantastic. Can I, can and, can I add
1: something there real quick, by sure. the way, j- j- just for context for the viewers? And I, and I love this the, the kind of this triptych of pictures uh, that you've chosen. That, that, that parish in the middle, that, that, that parish church in the middle, that church, the congregation there is is almost 500 years old. Like, that's the antiquity. I mean, what you're looking at in the center there, that's just a Franciscan parish. On the left, that's the Metropolitan Cathedral, which stands on the rubble of what used to be the Aztec main temple where they conducted the human sacrifices that Cortez and Spanish thankfully put a stop to. And so I just I think it's worth just emphasizing this is an old, old place that goes beyond anything we've got in the United States.
0: And I mean, even beyond what, especially when you look at Texas history, like we think anything 100 years <laughs> is old here, but yeah. there it dates back. And then here's a, an even closer picture of, of the Tilma, which was just so amazing to see that. Um, I think the American, or not American, sorry, Mexican flag flying underneath her, just claiming her as a symbol of, of the country was something very moving. But then this trip, uh, Josh got to do something else that I um, did not unfortunately get to <laughs> see, which was bullfighting, or what what's the word for it in Spanish again?
1: Uh, Torero, I think. Wow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: Oh, he was sending me a bit, uh, pictures and videos as this was going on, uh, just trying to make me jealous for rejecting going on this trip, which I will never, ever do again. <laughs> um, but then there were other cultural features. So um, what are some of the things that I'm looking at uh, with these photos?
1: Well, you know, one of the things uh, I w- that I really like about Mexico City is, uh, in, in some ways, uh, it's it's sort of like what I would imagine being in Paris in the 1920s was like, uh, you know, almost a movable feast type of thing. The city is, is filled with parks, with open spaces, there's a lot of life. There's a lot of intellectual life that's very obvious there. Uh, if you now, it's, it's all in Spanish, but if you can read Spanish, it's an amazing place to go get an Aquarian books. Uh, you know, really good, uh, you, know, you know, literature and things like that. And so, uh, you know, what you're seeing here, you're seeing a, a a plaza out in Parque Mexico where a bunch of kids are out there and they're essentially playing soccer on on this. Um, uh, really, kind of a blacktop. There's some books that I bought uh, on the on the right-hand side. There, you're seeing the Coyotes of Coyoacan, which was Cortez's headquarters, essentially after the conquest of Mexico in 1521. And uh, it is just it is just so vivid and so vibrant, nearly everywhere, um, that the contrast with the decrepit state of Mexican governance is stark. Because it is such a great city,
0: right? And I think that's one thing that we both want to emphasize is that Mexico City and like the Mexican people have a tradition that even like you and I both, uh, are continue to claim a part of and and have, um, cultural features that we both really, really enjoy. Um, so whenever we criticize the Mexican governance, um, it's almost recognizing that there's, we have sympathy for people who are having to live under that. Absolutely. Um, and so here, this is uh, almost an overwhelming (laughs) amount of pictures that I put together, um, from different churches, uh, I think in different parts of Mexico city. Um, the thing that stood out to me with this though, is the amount of Gold that is used in these churches, just everywhere, and the color of the paintings. Um, what what do you think that symbolizes for uh, Mexican society?
1: Well, uh, you know what what this really emphasizes, and what you're seeing here is uh, a variety of photos. Uh, you know, some of this is from Metropolitan Cathedral uh, when you were there, Ariana. Some of this is from uh, the Cathedral of, um, uh, sorry, the Barroquia de uh, uh, San Felipe Neri, San Felipe Neri. Uh, which is also in the historic center, and, and what you're seeing here is legit uh, uh, Baroque uh, Rococo art um, uh, of a type that doesn't exist in the United States, and uh, I mean, it signifies several things. I mean, the, the, pr- the primary thing that it signifies is great faith, obviously, just the, just the profundity and the intensity of this very Spanish Catholic faith uh, that took root in Mexico and is still there today. Um, but the other thing that it shows is the extent to which uh, Mexico at one point, when it was part of uh, kind of the Spanish global metropolis, really was an extension of this very European, very Christian culture that wrapped around the world at one point. And uh, the and the results of it are with us still today.
0: Right. And let's look at that photo in the middle there on its own. Uh, what does it say underneath there at the bottom?
1: Yes, this is the uh, Reliquia de la Santa Cruz. Uh, this is a relic of the Holy Cross. Uh, and so what you've got, uh, it's sort of yeah, a modified- Yeah, this getting
0: a little bit closer to see where the piece of that cross is. Yeah,
1: it's it's, it's sort of a modified monstrance uh, that typically would probably hold a Eucharist. Uh, but uh, what you're seeing in the center of a cross is, is literally a splinter in there. And I don't quite know what it's embedded in because um, uh, I didn't take a close look when I took the picture, but uh, but that's there and it's there for reverence. And, you know, what's really interesting to me is that uh, any, any of you who have been to Europe or things like that, you know, you, you often see these churches, churches like this as effectively museum pieces, people walking around and taking pictures Obviously, I did walk around and take pictures. Otherwise, we wouldn't have these photos. But at the same time, they're, they're active parishes with real parish life. And, you know, one thing I didn't I didn't uh, I don't think it's in your, your photo set here, but I did text you a photo of it, Ariana. There was a monstrance uh, uh, down in coyoacan at a um, 1527 parish, if I remember correctly. And uh, the adoration chapel was full. So this is this wow. is a real and living faith, uh, and that was on a Tuesday afternoon, uh, by the way. That's so impressive, and people uh, yeah. can't
0: get perpetual adoration here in a lot of the a lot of America, which is so sad.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's uh, it's it is alive there for whatever reason, and and, and I think that's the, that's worth understanding for us. Uh, you know, as Americans, we can take a lot of pride, just pride, in a lot of our civic culture and our governance and the things that make it work. Um, uh, but there is virtue in faith and devotion as well, and I would argue that on some fronts. Uh, Mexico has gotten it right more than we have,
0: right? Um, and then again, just more religious, uh, beautiful pictures here. And I think also, again, r- just showing the devotion to Our Lady that uh, that you see in Mexico.
1: Absolutely. Can you can you go back one? Actually, though, I yeah. think I think it's worth that church on the left. That's a, that's a Saint Rose of Lima Parish. That's a, that's a 1943 church. Uh, oh, so even
0: <laughs> modern churches are being built with, I guess, architecture that we're not putting the time into in, a, in American you, churches. Yeah,
1: you don't get uh, kind of the downfall of Catholic church architecture in Mexico really until you start hitting the 1970s, Wow. Um, uh, which, which I think is true for a lot of the rest of the world. But it's just worth noting that, uh, you know, for all the antiquity that we see, and there's a ton of antiquity just in these three photos, uh, that, that one left is within living memory. And so, you know, for those of us who are traditionalists and we like the style of architecture, we like the style of devotion, uh, we can get it back if we choose. It's not that far away.
0: And then, um, I guess moving on from the significance of of religion and Catholicism in Mexico, this is another uh, photo that you sent me. So, what what's going on here?
1: More of a civic religion. Uh, this is Benito Juarez. Uh, so, Benito Juarez, he's being crowned with uh, the laurels of victory, and also the lo- and also the thanks of the republic uh, uh, here. So, Juarez, uh, just a thumbnail it. Uh, was, I believe, a Zapotec Indian, uh, which is, which was unusual uh, in Mexican civic culture for, for an indigene to rise to national leadership. Uh, but he was a liberal, he was a reformista, and he, um, uh, in addition to defeating a lot of kind of the Mexican conservatives of his era, actually led the successful resistance of the Mexican nation against the French occupation in the 1860s. Uh, and one of the keys to his eventual victory, in addition to his persistence, his faith in the nation, uh, was millions of arms and ammunition sent to him by Abraham Lincoln. Uh, so we have this historical example, which I think is very heartening, of the United States contributing to liberty in Mexico, contributing to the survival of the Mexican Republic against a foreign occupation. And although you'll find no mention of Lincoln here, not that there necessarily needs to be one, uh, we should understand that this victory that you see commemorated here is uh, in part the fruits of American policy and effort,
0: for right? Mexicans. And I think that highlights that at one point in history, America and Mexico had a, a friendship between their their governances. Do you think that that's the case? Uh, uh,
1: occasionally, yeah. Uh, you know, look, there's always been friction with the U.S.-Mexico relationship for a variety of reasons. Uh, and uh, you know, you know, the United States had its own purposes also in wanting the French out. Uh, we should be very clear about that. But uh, when the relationship has worked, I would say it's worked well. It worked well when Mexico needed help to regain its independence from the French uh, and from the Habsburg emperor uh, in Chapultepec Castle. Uh, And it also worked, I would argue, largely starting from the 1930s through about the first decade of this century, uh, in which U.S.-Mexico relations actually were relatively placid and relatively fruitful. But that's been interspersed with a lot of episodes of violence and conflict, and unfortunately, that seems to be where we're headed again today.
0: Is into that violence and conflict? I believe so. So the last time you were in Mexico City was I think a year and a half before this trip, right? What and uh what summer? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. about a Back year in March. apart, yeah. Mm-hmm. What was the um, difference between meetings that the last time you were in Mexico City and this and this time?
1: Well, without betraying confidences, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, M- Mexico and the Mexican political elite. Uh, and again, we have to, we, we really do have to separate. It's 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 always worth saying over and over that 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 you have to separate the, the kind of the mass of Mexicans and the elites uh, who rule over them uh, in many ways. A good friend uh, once said to me that uh, Mexico is what you get when you get a fundamentally good country ruled by elites who don't care about the people at all. And uh, now that describes a lot of Washington, D.C. too. Um, but that, that, that's a tragic description, I think, in many ways. But the absence of stewardship uh, that you see among a lot of Mexican elites, uh, left populists in particular, but not just them, um, uh, is really heartbreaking, uh, especially when you contrast that with the entrepreneurialism, the hard work, the effort, uh, the desires, and the dreams of ordinary Mexicans uh, uh, everywhere. So, so in, in in our conversations, you know, what, one of the things we've been trying to do is raise the alarm uh, about the trajectory of U.S.-Mexico relations because they've gotten quite bad uh, over the past six years, especially under the current president, whose term is ending, uh, I believe, on October first, two thousand twenty-four. Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, uh, if also you don't... known as Amlo. Amlo, yes, mm-hmm. after his four initials, uh, Amlo. If you don't know who Amlo is. Uh, I would encourage viewers of Sweet Tea to uh, Google him uh, and look up ProPublica, the left-wing media outlet ProPublica as well, because ProPublica published a story about two weeks ago about the probable links between AMLO and the Mexican drug cartels. I actually cartels. have a quote
0: from that. Uh, oh, please. Really well, I don't, I don't yeah. mean to laugh you.
1: Go ahead. <laughs> no, uh, perfect. Read us a quote. Yeah. So
0: this is, the article was entitled, Did Drug Traffickers Funnel Millions of Dollars to Mexican President López Obrador's First Campaign? So usually when there's a question in articles, you pointed this out in your podcast, which is why I'm bringing it up. Okay. Usually when there's a question in articles, the answer will be no, it's like it's actually not or there's more to the story. Yeah. In this case, is that is that the case? Did they Right. Did they funnel well, money?
1: Betteridge's law of headlines says that anytime a headline ends in a question mark, the answer is no. But I think, but we're breaking
0: rules in this. (laughs) Breaking rules
1: in this one. I think ProPublica, which again, I'm I'm astonished. I'm praising ProPublica. It's a very left wing outlet. Mm -hmm. Uh, But in this case, uh, it had really extraordinary reporting on possible links between um, President Lopez Obrador and the Mexican drug cartels. And right, uh, it says, yeah, just says that the money
0: was provided to campaign aides in 2006 in return for a promise that Lopez Obrador administration would facilitate the traffickers' criminal operations. Yeah. So why should Americans care about that then if it's happening on well, the other side of the border? We
1: should care if it's a narco state on our border, uh, first and foremost, because that doesn't stay uh, on the south side of the border. This is something that the Texas Public Policy Foundation has been pointing out over and over over several years. Uh, and, and, and by the way, we had this thesis of a linkage between the current Mexican regime and the narco traffickers, long before this ProPublica story broke, it was—it's—it's it's, it's kind of been an open secret. I mean, we've talked to people. This is one reason we go to Mexico, because we actually are able to have conversations with individuals in person who are willing to tell us very candidly. Yeah, there's an alliance. Between the president of Mexico and the Sinaloa cartel. So, as to why we care, I mean, we care for a variety of reasons. First of all, because the goods uh, that these uh, cartels traffic in, apparently abated abetted by the Mexican state itself, kill tens, if not hundreds of thousands of Americans every year. Uh, so, you know, that, that's reason number one to care. But and that's mo-
0: referring to like fentanyl deaths. Fentanyl, absolutely.
1: Fentanyl, and then and then any other any other you know product, narcotic you can name that right. actually does carry a death toll with it, whether in direct effects or the generative violence right. uh, that it creates when it enters American communities. Um, uh, we also have to understand that these cartels uh, conduct a modern-day slave trade in human trafficking. You know, we, we've all heard about the millions of illegal immigrants who are coming across the border right now, these illegal aliens who are flooding the country. It is a legitimate invasion in the constitutional sense. Um, but we have to understand that every single one of these individuals is trafficked by these cartels, and it is commerce in man. We have to understand that, and there's no moral difference between it and the slave trade pre-1808 uh, that landed on American shores. And so, and so that that that's another reason that we have to care about it because again, there's no problem down south that doesn't come into our communities. And then, and then the third big reason to me um, that we have to care about it is that as Mexico continues to break up, as rule of law, as authority, as normal patterns of life continue to disintegrate in Mexico, uh, it that that violence and corruption absolutely will come across the border, and in fact, already has. Uh, we're lucky so far that the, that the direct violence itself has not really come across the border. Although in the past, you can look to examples, 1910, 1920 in particular, in which American towns were you know, routinely attacked by Mexican bandits. Um, uh, that's not out of the realm of possibility given the trajectory of events. Uh, but what we can you know what we can we can look to right now that is happening right now is corruption so corruption in local officials um, there are multiple cases just to give you one small subset of corruption of sheriff's departments in South Texas uh, you know you know looking back to the past 20 years and when that, you
0: say South Texas what parts of South Texas is that well to?
1: so the specific counties I'm talking about and this is all in public record uh, you've got you've got either sheriffs, or sheriff's deputies. Um, And again, I'm talking 2000, the year 2000 to 2024. So it's a a, a generational span. But uh, uh, Presidio County out west, Hidalgo County, Cameron County, which is um, Brownsville-McAllen. And then uh, I believe Starr County just had a a sheriff's deputy who was also uh, federally indicted. That's so
0: weird to think about that I was growing up in a place that was like collaborating, at least to some extent with
1: well, Hidalgo County actually had—I uh, mean, I'm—I'm—I'm I'm, I'm ashamed to say—a—a uh, a sheriff uh, named uh, Trevino, uh, who uh, he was, one of our cousins. He, he, one of our cousins, <laughs> yeah, one of our cousins, uh, who and his son was uh, effectively head of this—this this, um, basically the this special tactics unit—and and he and his son, the two Trevinos. Uh, liaised with the Setas, Los setas cartel, to uh, protect loads coming across the Rio Grande, and so they were essentially subcontractors. Interestingly enough, the head of the Setas at the time, also a Trevino. So, so, so. so <laughs> is that how they hooked you should, up? <laughs> you have no trust in us. Probably not. Uh, but uh, you know, the, the, this kind of thing—corruption—is. Uh, I mean, the death in the American communities is terrible. The violence is terrible. The insecurity is terrible. Um, but corruption really is the end of democracy. I mean, uh, public corruption really is the end of our ability to rule ourselves and to live in freedom and liberty, and uh, th- that to me is worth fighting. And that alone, you know, set aside the fact that we have great sympathy for and compassion for our Mexican neighbors, because we do as Texans. Um, uh, that's reason enough to engage.
0: Right. So what does engaging with this issue look like?
1: I mean, it means it means a variety of things. And so the, at the foundation, we've been talking about uh, a series of of policy principles and policy answers that need to be done you know if i had to pick one principle of action and there's a variety of policies that could follow from it i would link trade and security that would be the number one thing that i would do and this is you know speaking speaking for myself but i think i speak reasonably for the foundation in this one as well uh, uh, you know if you link trade and security then that has a powerful incentivizing effect because again you know if you think about if you think about what's happening south of the border and you think about the cartels and the Mexican state writ large is effectively being in synthesis with one another which they which they pretty much are it's unfortunate to say but they pretty much are. What do they care about? What's the incentive structure that gets them to deliver change? It's not its not a sense of stewardship to their people. They don't care about the welfare of the migrants. They don't care about the well-being of their fellow Mexicans. Uh, in fact, I would say that Texans care more about that than they do. Um, but they do care about the money. They care about the money and they care about the commerce that comes across. So if you have a policy where you're actually linking commerce, legal commerce, by the way, Uh, you know, the billions that are made in cross-border trade to the provision of security, and you don't get the benefits of that commerce unless you provide the security, Uh, my suspicion is that that one thing is probably the single most efficacious move that policymakers could make to start generating real security at the U.S.-Mexico border. It's not the end of our concerns, but it would be a good beginning.
0: I would have... um... I feel like the, uh, an instinct that I would have that would agree with that is it seems like in um, tourist areas in Mexico, mm-hmm. they're going to find a lot more safety and security because there's an interest in in keeping that area safe. So I, I think it does make sense and it does track that since that's something that they, they do care about. And it's is, is something that you just are able to see through travel. I think that you're that right. Carry over. Yeah,
1: yeah. No, no, I think you're I think you're absolutely right. And, uh, and, and you see it with like a special regime of. Of uh, police forces in tourist areas, right, and you know special hotlines for tourists and things like that. You know, one of the one of the things that the that, that we, I mean, at the foundation, but uh, that we as a conservative movement have talked about in the past several years is this idea of policy being America first. Like, you've got to put got to put American first. Americans should be the proper focus of American policy, which is all completely true. That's obviously correct. Uh, Mexico needs Mexico first policy, Uh, you know, you know, Mexico needs, and this is beyond our power to impose. And I'm not suggesting that we do. uh, But uh, if I could wish anything for for, you know, for for Mexicans, for the people that we talk with and liaise with and work with, uh, and just the ordinary Mexican down south uh, is I'd love for them to have a government that puts Mexico first. Um, that puts Mexicans uh, first because that would mean not just taking care of the tourists, not just taking care of the nice places in Mexico City where like you and I get to go, but taking care of the places where Mexicans actually live and work and must exist in order to pursue their livelihoods. That would be transformative change for them
0: right and so to be able to learn more about these sorts of issues i would definitely recommend if you're wanting more on that to go over to the hard country podcast how often do you guys release is it every week every other week right now
1: uh it's uh sometimes it's every week uh, but it's at least every other week Uh, my colleague melissa ford uh, and and she's been on the show Oh, she has? Yes. Yeah, She's yeah. been on Sweet Tea? She has. Really? What did she talk about when she was here? She talked about well, Bolivia? This and
0: then look, we did talk about her history in Bolivia, okay. Texas. And, I didn't know that. Um, a couple of border stuff, but things ah. have obviously changed since the, a few months. Everything, I feel like, goes really fast with what's happening at the border. It, it
1: does. It is Well, my, my absolutely delightful colleague, Melissa Ford, who is Bolivian-American, and uh, I recently found out has deep roots in East Texas as well. So maybe she and I are cousins, too. <laughs> Uh, uh, but, uh, we, yeah, we do the Hard Country podcast, and that is probably the number one source I would recommend for keeping up with the foundation's thought, analysis, and observation on what's going on south of the border.
0: Right. Well, I guess yeah. going farther north of the border, back into America, let's talk about another big thing that just happened this well last weekend for us. The Super Bowl just happened. Did you get a chance to watch?
1: I did get a chance to watch it, and uh, it ended, as I hoped, with a victory for the Chiefs. Um,
0: Now, you have to tell me, though, were you rooting it uh, for the Chiefs because you were rooting for the Chiefs or were you rooting for Taylor Swift's boyfriend's team?
1: Neither. Um, uh, No, no, neither. (laughs) Neither. Please. Honestly. Uh, uh, No, I rooted for the Chiefs for two reasons. One is uh, as a lifelong uh, Dallas Cowboys fan, uh, I hate the Niners. Uh, And so the Niners, seeing them defeated, it's not enough that my team wins, the other team must lose. Uh, and since my team has failed to win for about 30 years now- So if
0: you're a Cowboys fan at this time, you, you don't care about winning, you just need to make sure that the I just need to make win. sure.
1: Look, I need to make sure the Redskins, they're, they're the Redskins, I'll never call them the commanders, the Redskins <laughs> uh, and the San Francisco 49ers and the Philadelphia Eagles. As long as those three teams lose at some point, it's a good season for me. I was alarmed to see the Niners reach the Super Bowl this year because they're actually a genuinely very good team uh, under Shanahan. Uh, but they couldn't get it through. The other reason I was rooting for the Chiefs, though, is, of course, I mean, the origin of the Kansas City Chiefs. Do you know what the origin of the Kansas no, City Chiefs is? They actually started as the Dallas Texans with the American Football League. Uh, yes, under the Hunt family, uh, who still continues to own it day, Lamar Hunt, founded the Dallas Texans, and eventually with the competition between what was in the NFL team, and the Dallas Cowboys, and the AFL team with the Dallas Texans, the Dallas Texans eventually removed themselves to Kansas City, uh, so they are part of the Texas diaspora of professional sports teams. Uh, another member of that club is, of course, the Tennessee Titans, who were really the Houston Oilers. Uh, you, know, you know, may they may they be remembered in honor. Um, I feel like uh, this is more
0: sports history than we have ever had on this show before. Oh, listen, (laughs) potentially ever (laughs) will have on the show.
1: There is. Again, I know probably the target market for the show is not really interested in NFL history in the (laughs) 1960s. But but if you have a man in your life that really is into football history, there's a great book called Ten Gallon War. I've forgotten (laughs) the author, uh, which is a history of the rivalry between the Dallas Texans who become the Kansas City Chiefs. And the Dallas Cowboys, and it's well worth reading. You can still get it on Amazon. Highly so if you need,
0: they need a belated Valentine's Day gift to a belated give someone.
1: Belated, Ten gallon war, <laughs> great book. Yeah. So
0: that gives, I guess, the your thoughts on the actual bowl itself. What did he think about the Usher halftime show? Uh,
1: boring, uh, bo- really boring, boring, forgettable. I mean, the halftime shows uh, are are typically are typically nothing. I mean, I mean, it was. Um, uh, it felt like a nostalgia gift to people who were born, uh, in the Clinton administration. And, uh, and I think that's, that's probably what it was intended to be. The funny thing is I'm
0: on the exact edge of that line. So yeah, sure. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. I mean, did you enjoy it?
0: So the, it was funny. The whole group that I was with really enjoyed it. And then I'm talking to other people. They either loved it like we did, or they hated it and didn't find it entertaining at all. Watching. I thought it was impressive. He was singing and roller skating at the same time. What more do you need to ask for from did, the Super Bowl? Did
1: you see the woman who fell off the stage on the roller skates? No. <laughs> so apparently, this is the only interesting thing about the halftime show to me. There was a woman who was roller skating because I guess there were a lot of people roller skating in there, and I was I was also like putting a kid to bed at that point too, so it was kind <laughs> of I was my attention was divided. Apparently, there's a woman who fell off stage in roller skating, and she has this phenomenal, uh, actually really amazing, hilarious um, uh, TikTok video. Uh, see, I'm relating to the youth. I'm talking about TikTok video, and uh, and she's got she's got this giant black eye. She fell off the stage, and she explains how it came to pass. She lied on her resume because she's an actress and
0: oh she said she could roller skate dance she said
1: she could roller skate dance because she needed the work and she said how hard can it be and she turned off she fell off the stage in the middle of the super bowl and uh you know the fact
0: that she made it through rehearsals and that far you got to give her props for that
1: that is the spirit that made america that woman (laughs) right there like you know doesn't know how to roller skate but she's out there on the super bowl and takes a tumble and owns it might be the most memorable thing that happened at that halftime show
0: was it was her falling off of the stage
1: probably yeah. i
0: think the most memorable halftime show still has to be for me at least is the the lady gaga performance because she actually fell out of the sky and so i think it's a success if someone fault. did you did you watch was that that at one? this super bowl no, no no i'm saying in the past like the most memorable super bowl halftime show was lady gaga oh that no that was no i forgot what year that was but she like like came out of the sky and. Came, did she really yeah it was amazing
1: i um I, I have only the most vague sense of who Lady Gaga is I'm sorry is she uh is she
0: again I guess people who are born at the she is she a, a communist
1: like why uh what why is she Why does she call herself that?
0: I feel like we need a separate episode to explore the really? history okay. of Lady Gaga. All right. That's fine. Yeah. That's there, fine. And there's like a lot of attachments to like, even I guess, LGBTQ culture now and like some of the drag queen stuff that came out of that because her eccentric oh, I see. dress. Oh. But also, yeah, it's, it's an interesting case. Okay. Study. She's a phenomenal singer, though. So
1: she was in A Star is Born. yeah, she was. Okay. Uh, yes, I remember she's some done of the some from that. Well. I mean, she's, she, she's legitimately talented.
0: But a lot of people will remember her like from the fact that she wore a meat dress once, like made entirely meat to something.
1: Yes, right, right, yeah. But
0: she is not the female superstar who I was going to bring up today. Oh, a sorry, lot of Demanda. people are calling this the Taylor Swift bull. And the <laughs> first, whenever I uh, had started this podcast series, Josh came to my office and he said, you have to have me on the show so I can talk about Taylor Swift. So (laughs) today you're finally getting your wish granted.
1: Oh, my gosh. Uh, Let's talk
0: about that whole relationship.
1: Dreams do come true. Mm -hmm. Well, I think uh, I think to fully uh, I'll put on my Vladimir Putin hat. I think to fully understand what's happening with Taylor Swift, we really have to go back to the Homeric era uh, of the Iliad. Uh, So rewind with me about six thousand years, if you will, (laughs) to the Bronze Age. And, uh, I feel
0: like this is Tucker Carlson's show whenever Pat Putin came on to consider
1: <laughs> consider the um, uh, you know you know, consider consider the the, the arc the, the the romantic arc of loss and reclamation at the heart of the <laughs> Iliad, which is uh, the woman uh, Helen who is faithless and spirited away. Uh, to Troy by Paris. And Paris himself, of course, is, is uh, not much of a man. He tries to be a warrior, but he's a, he a slight figure and, and certainly can't stand up to the Achaeans, Ajax and Achilles and the heroes of old. Certainly not to Menelaus, Helen's actual husband, uh, who uh, motivates uh, the Achaeans to war, uh, a war of 20 years uh, that, uh, that uh, ends in Troy being ruined and Hellas, Helen being born back By menelaus so so you know taylor swift uh is 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 reenacting this without knowing it this archetype of, of of reclamation and travis kelsey is the american menelaus uh she's been spirited away by these slight waifs of british men who will blow away in a stiff breeze uh who are not manly who could never possibly defend her Uh, against, uh, say, uh, you know, a phalanx attack on the plains of Anatolia, but Travis Kelsey can. And uh, so she has now returned in fullness, the Helen being born back by the American Menelaus. And I think it is a um, culturally significant and celebratory moment for all of us.
0: Did you come up with this comparison yourself?
1: Uh, Who wouldn't? (laughs) I mean, didn't you?
0: You know, I did not look at Taylor Swift's relationship and think, wow, this reminds me of a Greek classic (laughs) whenever I was examining it. Well, I'm
1: I'm I'm then it pleases me to be the first.
0: What I did notice was a lot of the drama that surrounded it in terms of the potential psyop. Have you heard about the the rumor speculations? I don't want to be like that person who's like, I believe in this conspiracy theory. But I do want to be the person that promotes the idea and the fun of conspiracy theory.
1: Of course. Of course. Well, well just as just as uh, Diana the Huntress and Aphrodite, the goddess of love, were jealous of, of Helen, so too uh, have some of the lesser lights of conspiracy land uh, decided that Taylor Swift herself is an agent of the other side of of the Biden regime. Uh, and now in in fairness to them, uh, Swift's views on on politics and society are are moronic. Uh, I mean, there's no hiding that uh, anybody who has watched, uh, as I have, the Miss Americana documentary on Netflix, uh, which is uh, 90 minutes. This life, is why
0: I needed you here. I'm not the Taylor Swift expert. I had to bring someone who actually watched through that.
1: I think I think you can. It's, it's interesting to me because there's certain things that you have to know about to understand america now uh to understand uh culture and um the nfl actually is one of them whether you like it or not and i would argue that uh, taylor swift is another uh and 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 unfortunately this pains me so much uh because i i uh, i loathe it Uh, but the harry potter series is another you know anything that provides a narrative i can connect to (laughs) a narrative life pathway uh, for people you, you must know about, even if you don't partake of it. And so, so, and, and so Swift especially has provided this template for a whole generation of women uh, who are themselves, uh, you know, one of the primary fonts of popular culture, and therefore are civics, and therefore everything that happens to the rest of And it of is us.
0: interesting watching something that comes out of culture make its way all the way into politics so deeply so that even Hillary Clinton tweeted something that has gotten traction, which is congratulations to Taylor's boyfriend and the entire Kansas City Chiefs community. Well, Did you th- see that she tweeted? Yeah, that? no,
1: I think I think Hillary is mapping uh, her own marital relationship onto that one. Uh, you know, the, 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 there's the old joke that uh, that uh, as as Hillary and Bill are traveling through Arkansas on their campaign bus, they uh, she Hillary says, "Stop, stop, stop the bus! I know this guy at the gas station." And So she gets off, she talks to the guy, she gets back on, and and Bill Clinton says, "Well, who was that, Hillary?" And uh, she says, oh, you're not going to believe this, but uh, you know, I used to date the owner of that gas station in high school. And Bill says, well, if you'd married him, you'd be married to a gas station owner. And she says, Bill, if I'd married him, he'd be president of the United States.
0: Is this so, a story that she's told?
1: No, she hasn't. That's just that's just an old Clinton <laughs> hey, joke. Uh, yeah, OK, yeah.
0: but well, you know how Kamala Harris and like even Biden have come up with these old childhood stories. I was like, oh, did this come from like the Clinton? No, no, this, <laughs> is, a, this well? is a false story. Okay. But I'm just saying like like
1: congratulations to Taylor's boyfriend. Yay, girl power. But, you know, uh, I mean, that's that's kind of uh,
0: that's the energy you're getting from it. Those are the so, vibes of it. <laughs> it's
1: so tiresome. It's uh, it's uh, you know, th- this tweet is dedicated to the 14 people globally who saw the marbles in the theater.
0: Because they're the audience who would have appreciated that and clapped and thought it was so brave. Did you know on her Twitter profile <laughs> yes. she describes herself as, um, oh, what was it? Because in the past I know she was uh, she had pantsuit aficionado on her Twitter bio. Oh yeah, yeah, and yeah. And then now I think it was hair. Um, oh, it was something about her hair, like she was had the. Wow, I feel like I can't remember it now. I'll throw it up on screen. You guys are seeing it now in the future. I
1: have not voluntarily read a Hillary tweet until I had to until I this it down. day.
0: But the bigger tweet that I think related more to the PSYOP thing that I wanted to get to okay. was the Biden one where they not confirmed it, but at least we're in on the joke. But just showing how all of these cultural things and the culture war is really playing out. All the way up to the president of the United States, and do you want to read the tweet? Of course, here? yeah. What I said? mean,
1: uh, Joe Biden says just like we drew it up, and he's got the dark Brandon uh, right. eye, you know, eye laser thing going on. Now, 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 we should be clear that this was posted at 9:50 p.m. Uh, Eastern time, so so way after the president's bedtime. Uh, but I do want to congratulate whatever intern came up with it. And put well, it got, yeah. not
0: only came up with it, but got approval to post it. Whoever put gone through that process, I I thought that was pretty funny. Is there
1: really any authority at this point? Who can say? What is truth?
0: Who's the authority? I don't don't know. But with that, to kind of go back a little bit and explain what this whole PSYOP is, um, uh, whenever I was trying to find this video today, all I was seeing was articles saying, four out of five Republicans believe in this new theory or just statistics like that that are coming out. And it's because Jesse Waters spoke about it on Fox News. So I'm gonna show you a little clip of that real quick. So let's let's watch it.
1: Well, around four years ago, the Pentagon Psychological Operations Unit Floated turning Taylor Swift into an asset during a NATO meeting. What kind of asset?
0: A psyop for combating online misinformation. Listen, you came in here wanting to understand how you just go out there and counter an information operation. Well, the idea is that social influence can help, uh, can help uh, encourage or. Uh, Promote behavior change, so potentially as like a peaceful information operation. I include Taylor Swift in here because she's, um, you know, she's a fairly influential online person. She finishes out with online personality. Okay. Have you ever seen that clip before?
1: No, but th- this this is standard issue marketing garbage. I mean, this has been around for for years and years and years and years. Oh, we're going to get an influencer to do this. So 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 no, nothing that I'm seeing here at this thing is is uh, uh, even remotely dispositive. It's good entertainment though.
0: It is. And watching the Super Bowl with that added background of like, oh, Taylor Swift could have been like the it almost felt like a a, polit- a political hallmark movie where like, oh, she's just a girl working with with NATO and he's just a guy who's working with Pfizer and they have to come <laughs> together. But they actually fall in love. And I thought that that added a new backdrop to watching the Super Bowl this year.
1: Uh, you know, for, for those of us of a particular age who uh, grew up on a lot of John Hughes films, uh, the girl who works with NATO was actually uh, extremely motivating. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, young people.
0: Yeah, sorry. That just like right over my head. Okay.
1: Okay. Well, uh, ask an elderly person to explain it to you. Ah, gotcha. All right. Go ahead.
0: We'll have to get a translator next time we (laughs) we're here. So, with that in mind, though, we're talking about like Taylor Swift now, that relationship. But what was it that made you a, I guess, fan of Taylor Swift to begin with?
1: Uh, Like I said, I'm interested. I I mean, mean, a few things. Uh, I'm interested in in her effect. Uh, on popular culture and the narrative uh, that she that she provides for the lives of the of these individuals for for, for good and for ill, uh, I also think she's kind of a tragic figure. I mean, I mean, you can't watch again the Miss Americana documentary, um, which which really does not portray her in a good light uh, at all, uh, and and not feel sorry for her uh, in some way. Uh, sort of the price of fame uh, is is taken out, uh, but but also, I mean, in in, in fairness, um, when she's good. She's very good. Um, uh, you know, the 10-minute the reissue of, uh, I think it was on Red, of All Too Well, uh, is, is is phenomenal. It's a, it's a work of art. She's actually not that good of a singer, uh, but she's a good writer when she chooses to be. When she doesn't choose to be, she's an abominable writer. But when she really hits and when she has the right producers, uh, Max Martin, for example, or Shellback, uh, you know, I think both of whom worked on the 1989 album, uh, and that sounded, uh, in terms of quality, and lyrical content like a legit album from the year of her birth, '89, and uh, it's just—it's terrifically impressive. Now. You go to some of the other albums, Reputation, Lover, um, which are which are abominable. I mean, they're garbage. Uh, they should be. You know, I I, I want to assemble a crowd of angry Baptists to throw it into a pyre <laughs> um, because they're so bad. But, we might um, be able
0: to find some of those around here to help you out.
1: Possibly, up. yes. Yeah, yeah. We'll have to leave Austin to really get a critical mass. <laughs> uh, but uh, you know, I, I think I think I think that's worth that's worth recognizing. And um, the fact is, she's present. And you know, living in the 2020s, s, uh, you would simply be ignorant of what's happening uh, in the world around you, as much as you would be had you chosen to not know of the Beatles in the 1960s.
0: So because she's that integral to what it means to be American at this point in time. uh,
1: To be American, to be part of popular culture, Western popular culture. Gotcha.
0: And again, it's just, it's so interesting to me how whenever something gets that big that it floods even into the politosphere to where you can't Speak about an election coming up without talking about her. Yep. So another big story that happened, I think it was last week, where Newsweek had published um, an article saying that strategists found that 18% of voters say they're more likely, or significantly more likely, to vote for a candidate endorsed by Swift. Had you heard about that statistic?
1: Uh, I hadn't heard that, but that sounds that that number actually sounds low.
0: Right. So yeah. I, with the the whole side up idea that we were talking about before, one of the ideas was that. The Biden administration was using her and they were going to have her announce, oh, I'm like, I'm going to vote for Biden. And it was going to be after the touchdown. And uh, anyway, that was the whole PSYOP idea of why the Chiefs were going to have to win for Biden. <sighs> yeah. But yeah. the other thing that came she, out. She's actually
1: an RFK voter. <laughs> Sorry. I'm just, I don't know. that. Yeah,
0: <laughs> the, I mean, she, but here's the thing and that everyone was pointing out after the whole scandal with this. Uh, she endorsed him last time. Mm hmm. So like it's, yes. it's not like it changes too many lines for one thing. Another piece of it that everyone's ignoring from this article, uh, that that study also showed that 17% of voters are less likely to vote for Biden if she were to endorse him. <laughs> so <laughs> it's just a wash. And it, but it is just wash. funny how the, that she's become such a central figure. Figure that it's everyone's recognizing. Oh, she's someone to watch out for because it's, it's a, a modern day influencer who's who's changed young women. I uh, think the reality, though, is that, is that the,
1: people, the people who are going to be moved um, uh, from a voting perspective, the people who would be moved by Taylor Swift are already voting for Joe Biden. And the people who would be propelled by that kind of celebrity endorsement are already voting for Donald Trump. So, Right, so, which is why it's just Washington. Yeah, Well, I mean, but, but even if the numbers were uneven, I'm just saying it wouldn't, it wouldn't change the actual outcome, uh, I think. Uh, but it's it's interesting to speculate about, and it certainly is um, uh, entertaining to do so. Right. So let's continue.
0: And so much so, I'll just give my one last stat that I had about this. Okay. So, um, Again, this is so crazy that people are studying this, but Monmouth University uh studied it or released a survey and it showed that just under one in five Americans believe that Taylor Swift is a part of a covert effort to help President Joe Biden win the 2024 election. Oh, so wow. People are believing it or they're joking because that's the other thing about online polling. It's
1: I think I think yeah. uh, I think, uh, you know, it, it might be a bit of a, a bit of an own goal in some way, like whatever genius decided that uh, it's a good idea for the American right to have a a, uh, a handsome football star meathead with his blonde songbird girlfriend encode that left wing, especially after they win the Super Bowl. Uh, that may be an outcome that uh, that these uh, these folks want to reconsider. <laughs>
0: That's actually true. I hadn't Don't even thought about that yet. Yeah, yes.
1: yeah. No, you shouldn't. That's, you shouldn't really code that left things. wing. The, the, there's the famous um, there's the famous photograph. I think of uh, I think it's Danny White, one of the Cowboys uh, greats from the 1970s who is uh, uh, kissing a cheerleader after a victorious game. Have you seen this picture? No, I haven't. No, uh, it's probably like 30 years before you were alive. So, uh, <laughs> no, I guess you haven't. But uh, but anyway, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a famous picture. And that's, um, you know, it's, it's sort of, it's analog is to, it's visual analog, it's thematic analog is to the sailor, in Times Square who's kissing the nurse on BJ day. Have you seen that picture?
0: Yes. yes. You know what I'm
1: talking about. Okay. So, so in both cases, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a sailor, it's a football quarterback and they've, you know, grabbed this woman and their celebratory right. kiss and things like that. Like, like until 20 minutes ago, those were right coded images. Like people looked at it and said, that's America. That's the America I want to have, you know, and that, uh, and so, and you're giving that to the left. Come on guys. So
0: we're surrendering something is what you're saying here.
1: Menelaus. Right. American Menelaus belongs to us i don't care how many vaccines he's gotten get him back yeah
0: so even if pfizer has him, we can get him back
1: we can get him back we can reclaim him yeah
0: so i guess speaking about the influence of taylor swift on young women i want to talk with you a little bit about uh the idea of women in leadership and what makes women good leaders okay which might be i guess a little bit funny that i had you know a man on the show to (laughs) talk about this with me It's, it's it's
1: based though
0: it is based on me. to ask based though. you.
1: I mean, that is a lot of, that's a lot of, on a of tr- scale from one that's to That's a lot of really trad coding coming really from base. you on that front. So I better talk to a man about women's leadership. Just to make sure no, that I please, understand please, it. Please, please, my trad Catholic friends, continue. My <laughs> so, trad Catholic Hispanic South Texas friends. You know,
0: I feel like we try to keep it even here. We'll have about 20 women on the show to talk about it and then two men just to make sure we're <laughs> okay, ready right. it out. Yeah, go ahead. So with that, um, I guess, what do you think makes a good woman leader?
1: Oh, man. Um, uh, uh, you know, uh, there, there's there's more than one archetype, though. Uh, you know, but 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 I think I think the um, uh, I think I think women's leadership is it's obviously qualitatively different than men's. And look, if I can start with the wrong way to do it, uh, in my view, the wrong way to do it is to do it in a way that denies the the ontological uh, uniqueness of women, which is rooted in qualities. That are not male and will never be. Uh, you know, chief among them, but not only. You know, maternity, the capacity for maternity, and 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 that, and everything that goes with it, um, gives women a leadership edge uh, in many ways. Uh, you know, there's a man, that I'll never have. You know, and, and it's 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 vice versa too. There's other things uh, uh, that go with it. But when you think of when you think of of women leading. Um, uh, I mean, to me, I mean, this is not. I know this is not a religious show, but to me, the you know the, the ultimate example of of a woman leader actually is 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 the Virgin Mary in Catholic and Orthodox tradition. Um, and, you know, someone who actually does assume a leadership role, a role in studying the early church, uh, a continuing role for those of us of a particular denomination and faith uh, in ensuring uh, the orthodoxy, smaller orthodoxy uh, uh, of the church, and so that is that's an example of women's leadership I, I'll, I'll also give um, if I could draw from uh, a much more crass and base level of popular culture yes please uh, do. I want to illuminate I know you haven't seen either of these movies which uh, you know in the pre-show discussions was very disappointed uh, t- uh, to learn this
0: I need to fix it by next week I'll fix you this. need
1: to watch uh, for, for for women's leadership uh, and, and we'll get to a movie that you have seen because I know you want to ask about one one particular person uh, you need to watch Terminator 2 and you need to watch aliens as well uh you know one of the this is this is orthogonal to your show but one of the 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 minor theses that i've enjoyed banding about over the years is this idea that james cameron over a period of just under five years made one of the best movies about motherhood and the best movies about fatherhood uh in in, in modern american history terminator 2 is is the movie about fatherhood but in it you have um uh, sarah connor linda hamilton's character who is a great example of, of, a, of a woman who leads a woman who fights um, uh, but is at the same time very conscious of the need that her son needs a father. So that's item one. Uh, the other one in Aliens, you've got uh, Sigourney Weaver's Ellen Ripley, uh, who also leads and fights and, and actually uh, takes over from weak men who are not able to fulfill, uh, you know, what what they ought to be doing as men. Poor Lieutenant Gorman being the the, the chief example. And. Uh, uh, Bill Pullman too Hudson, uh, but uh, but to, you know, she also is 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 somebody who steps forth, and I think what's interesting between the two portrayals uh, in both in both these Cameron films, is that is that both women are um, uh, they use violence, but they don't shed their femininity, and they do it in the protection of their children, symbolic or real, uh, and and that to me speaks to a particular quality of women's leadership that is inaccessible to anyone else. Now, that doesn't mean like in the real world, obviously, when you're not being attacked by cyborgs or aliens, that there's no role for women's leadership in that. Uh, It clearly isn't. But, uh, you know, I think I'll hold the rest of my thought for I know what your follow-up question is because you want to ask about somebody (laughs) specific. So please go ahead.
0: Right. So I do agree that that's that's definitely a component of it. And like filling that in, and there is something that's a maternal instinct and to care for other people that will drive women in leadership roles. And something that we both agree on is that modern action movies and with that have women in them they usually don't cast or they don't have a female character or like a real woman character. They have someone who who's like a woman playing a character, but really it's it's a role that could have you could have just gender swapped it and it would have fit better as as a man and made more sense.
1: Well, well, I think that's exactly but, right, and that's worth that's worth going into just really briefly because mm-hmm. what they're doing is they're is they're writing women as if they were men in the right. belief that that is the fulfillment of women. This is where the Marvel movies have gone completely wrong. I don't know. Did did, did you watch uh, did you watch any of the Marvel movies? Did you watch the Avengers? Or... Yeah.
0: So I watch I watched most of them leading up until in uh, oh my gosh Endgame, and then after that I, I kind of gave up. Oh, smart And move. I actually feel like. I I will defend WandaVision, though, and that I think that she actually was a a female woman character in a way that other uh, modern superhero women are not. They're not women. They're just like, they have a female like casting for something that is really a male role. And
1: and what was her heroic fulfillment in the end?
0: Motherhood. (laughs) Exactly
1: right. So right.
0: But we and I do want to qualify this and that there's different types of motherhood that women take on throughout their lives totally and agree for other people.
1: totally agree totally agree no no i think you know, i think i think we're on the same page um uh, the, the reason i bring up the marvel movies though i don't know if you recall in uh, in the second avengers movie age of ultron uh black widow do you recall this black widow expresses an incompleteness like like right. kind of the the mm-hmm. core because she has been the, the red room where they train her as a like russian spy they render her sterile and what was interesting to me is you, is is when that came out the howls of protest from the online left were absolutely deafening and, and actually, uh, I think that resulted in a change in how Disney and the MCU team approached writing women, which is where you get really just abominable content like She-Hulk, mm-hmm. for example, which, did you watch that?
0: No, thank goodness. You watch <laughs> all the
1: Star Wars garbage, but you didn't watch She-Hulk, like, like She-Hulk, She-Hulk She-Hulk, makes- uh... Star Wars
0: didn't make that many movies. <laughs> Marvel she... was done.
1: No, no, it's fine. Well, I'll, I'll just say that She-Hulk makes uh, the very worst Star Wars show, like Ahsoka. No, um, no, 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 no. like At,
0: Audience listening to this, please no, no. go watch our episode on Ahsoka oh, so you're not okay. confused by this blasphemy. All
1: right. I'll let you continue to run your show. Please go ahead. So, you're so, but Star Wars, right?
0: Yes. What yes. I was just going to say um, whenever you were talking to me um, off the show just about some of the the female action heroes of, of like the 1980s um, who really embodied strong female leadership and um, mm-hmm. it, it demonstrated really good examples for, for women, I asked, like, oh, do you think that Leia fits into that category? So, yeah, I, question. <laughs> and, and I, thought, I thought
1: that was a really interesting question, too, because it actually made me stop and think uh, uh, about it. You know, how does I mean, Princess Leia in the Star Wars uh, films, at least the first two, I mean, we'll set aside like Return of the Jedi was just Muppets, uh, basically. But, uh, <laughs> but but you see Star Wars Empire. and Empire. And what I think is interesting in there is that is that the, the, there's a subtle type of leadership uh, that she exerts within those films. Um, the, it takes—I won't say—it takes more than one watch, but if you—if you're not looking for it, you might miss it. Um, she is she is overtly coded up front as kind of a capital L leader. She's a princess. She's a politician. She's a military leader within the rebellion. Um, but the real effect of her leadership actually uh, is—it turns out to be uh, in in the life of Han Solo. You know, you know, and that that, that turns out to be the enduring effect that the films focus on. Uh, is that before her, he is—he's a rogue, right? Uh, I mean, he's—he's he's, he's a nobody, uh, first of all. But he's—he's he, he's a pirate, he's a rogue, he's a smuggler, he's out for money, he has no responsibility. And it is—it is her and her effect on him, her leadership of him, which expresses itself in many different ways, that makes him turn for the first time to a higher cause, to something with meaning and purpose. Uh, and direction. And, and, and I think that is a really powerful illumination of, of, of one of the things that women's leadership can do uh, in, in individual lives uh, or, 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 or collectively uh, in many cases. Um, and so that's uh, I think it's a great example.
0: Of some, and I think that also displays a different, I guess, phase of life, and where where women can enact leadership is calling men to hire, even if they're not, like, in a, in married yet, or just in like in in social groups. I've noticed that that's a big thing that that takes place as well.
1: Absolutely. But yeah. the
0: the and even though of course it would be fantastic if men took that responsibility upon themselves, realize like, oh, we have a broken culture, I can change that. But women, let's be honest right. here.
1: Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, <I> would say <laughs> it would
0: be great, but then women in, in turn also do have a responsibility, especially if you realize that to have standards and call the men around you, even in your friendships, to hire. And yeah. I think that they'll usually a lot of times I've noticed that they'll respond to that call if you're willing to set those standards to begin yeah. with.
1: Yeah, no, no, you're right. It, it's 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 probably true. The aggregate of men will will meet the standard that the aggregate of women set.
0: Right. And so yeah. as a woman, I hope that like what I can do with with this show and just in, in female friendships in my life is be able to, to like, you know, build a community where that's that's what we expect from people. And, yeah. and hopefully change the culture one to a little group of friends at a time
1: well it's too late for me but i hope people of your generation respond
0: so uh yeah. concluding the show i want you to be able to give a piece of advice to younger women what is it that you think that they can
1: oh my gosh they can do uh just in life in general
0: yeah you actually had a good example the other day but i don't want to take your answer from you
1: <laughs> i don't remember what was my good example
0: well your answer you something want to prompt that, me sure I'm so sorry well it's something that i'm going to be doing very recently
1: Oh yes, oh. <laughs> get married. Get married early. Have kids early. Uh, well, I mean, you know, don't don't take my word for it. There's a lot of social science behind that. Uh, but uh, but yeah, that, that that is good advice for everybody, for men and women, uh, both is is uh, is is to do that. Uh, I'll, I'll I'll add one thing to it though. Um, uh, Go to church, uh, or or go to synagogue, or you know you know practice your religion, unless it's an evil religion. Don't do that. But <laughs> but uh, but 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 do that. Uh, that that kind of meaning, I think I think can get um, you know. I'll speak from personal experience. Its purpose can be obscure when you're younger. Uh, I feel like I'm a very old person saying this. I'm only forty-eight, by the way, so give me a little <laughs> bit of slack. Uh, but uh, the, the 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 purpose of that can be obscure. But but what you find is that if you if you invest in um, uh, the habitus, you know, to, to borrow a Catholic uh, phrase, if you invest in the actions and understanding, you know, as Aristotle said that you know actions define us. It's it's what we do that defines us, and if you cultivate those actions, uh, whether it's um, you know going to church on Sundays, uh, if you're Catholic, going to mass, going to Eucharistic adoration, having a prayer routine, no matter what Christian denomination you are, going to synagogue if you're Jewish, you know, mosque for Muslim, and so on. Uh, cultivating cultivating those habits and cultivating that way of life uh, you are going to find later on, maybe not much later on depending when you do have people who depend on you, whether they're children or spouse or uh, you know the network of individuals with whom you associate um, that is going to be the foundation upon which you subsist and will see you through the suffering that's inevitable in any life. Um, and so in addition to all that, that's my counsel.
0: Thank you so much for that Josh. I hope people are able to take that to heart. Yeah, Yeah, I'm glad that we actually got to be able to spend this much time talking. I feel like usually we're uh, caught in between offices and getting three-minute talks. So thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. It's
1: always my pleasure, prima. It's good.
0: (laughs) And where can people find you? Uh,
1: When I'm least expected. Oh, no, (laughs) sorry. Um, You can find me at TexasPolicy.com. Uh, and also on The Hard Country on YouTube. So look up The Hard Country on YouTube and you can find us there.
0: Yeah, thank you again for being on the show. And to everyone else, happy Friday. Uh, Have a good Lent, good fruitful Lent, and a happy Valentine's Day weekend.